Hello, and welcome to From Russia with News, a weekly news and analysis podcast brought to you by the Moscow Times. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Millions of citizens of Russia are united by the Olympic dream. I view the Russians as a far greater challenge that we have. President Putin, uh, he just said it's not Russia. A unique country, not bad, not bad at all. My name is Jonathan Brown, and I'm an editor in our newsroom here in central Moscow. This week on the program, almost 30 years ago, the Taliban ousted Soviet troops from Afghanistan with the help of the United States. But in recent months, the insurgent group has made multiple high-profile visits to Moscow, including this week. Russia wants to promote its image as a moderator, as a power broker, studying from the Middle East, North Africa, even Central Asia and Afghanistan as well. We'll be joined in the studio by Middle East expert Alexei Khlebnikov to talk about why these former foes increasingly look like fast friends. And later, Russia's statistics agency, Rostat, is under new management. Since Alexander Sorinov was asked to step down in December, the agency has issued new and corrected data, which is raising eyebrows. It's even possible that it's not just poor quality data, but book cooking. We'll be speaking to Leonid Bershitsky, a Bloomberg columnist, about why some of these numbers look too good to be true. While we were recording this week's podcast, we had some breaking news that we wanted to give you the Russian reaction to. On Wednesday, a court in the Russian city of Oryol found Dennis Christensen, a Danish national and Jehovah's Witness, guilty of extremism and jailed him for six years. Christensen is the first Jehovah's Witness to be detained for extremism in Russia. We spoke to Roman Lunken, an expert on religious affairs in Russia, to get his reaction to the news. First of all, does this verdict come as a surprise to you? I think that uh, that uh, their the decision uh, is uh, is expected because it's a consequence of uh, from one side uh, uh, of a special policy of uh, Russian authorities uh, to non-government organization uh, of of a pressure of a government to to uh, to NGOs to social sphere. Uh, the second, uh, it's uh, it's a consequence of uh, of a special attitude of, of Russian authorities to religious minorities. And uh, the third thing is uh, uh, is certainly uh, touch anti-extremist uh, legislation in Russia. And certainly, according to that anti-extremist legislation, the decision about Dennis Christensen uh, fate is. Uh, uh, it's a, it's a just decision. What does this say more broadly about Russia's approach to religious minorities? There is no appropriate level of uh, of tolerance in in Russian policy and in Russian society uh, to, to religious minorities, uh, and uh, um, and there is a problem in in perception of religious pluralism in in Russian society. Certainly, what precedent does this set now for the Jehovah's Witnesses community in in Russia, but also for other religious minorities? What do you think the reaction will be? I think that uh, that for uh, for Russian authorities and uh, and uh, for Russian enforcement uh, enforcement agencies and the security service in general, uh, their decision about Dennis Christensen is a small victory and the justification justification of uh, of all uh, of all that uh, anti-religious campaign uh, against Jehovah's witnesses uh, against other extremists uh, and also in uh, controlling of uh, missionary activity in Russia according to Yeravaya law and how do you think um, this will impact on Russian 
religious minorities in, in general throughout the country? It's a good question uh, because uh, it has also um, a psychological effect. Psychological effect because it's it's uh, threatened uh, uh, evangelical churches. Uh, uh, for example, I talked uh, with uh, with many of, of pastors, servants, uh, and uh, leaders of of Protestant uh, associations, uh, and they certainly feel themselves uh, very uncomfortable in in such situation. I mentioned the uh, uh, Protestant churches because uh, they are the main um, competitors to, to Russian Orthodox Church and uh, and the second uh, Christian confession in in Russia and in Russian regions uh, just now. Uh, certainly, it's a, uh, it's a bright uh, signal of uh, of Russian officials and enforcement agencies to all other non-historical religions in Russia to be quiet and loyal. Broman, thanks very much for your, your reaction to the news. Mm, thanks a lot. Thank you. Russia's long and costly occupation of Afghanistan is often described as having precipitated the collapse of the Soviet Union. With the backing of the United States, the Taliban ended the 10-year intervention, which cost tens of thousands of lives. Decades on, however, the Kremlin has been accused of helping to arm the Taliban in its fight against the United States. And this week, Moscow is hosting top Taliban leaders for talks alongside Afghan officials. In the studio to talk about this new and unlikely alliance is Alexei Khlebnikov, a regular columnist at the Moscow Times and Middle East expert at the Russian International Affairs Council, a think tank set up by the Kremlin. Um, Alexei, thanks very much for being in the studio with us today. Thanks for having me. So tell us, first of all, what's behind this budding relationship between Moscow and the Taliban? How do we explain that? In the first place, we know that Taliban is officially recognized in Russia as a terrorist organization. And then the question comes, why did Russian official hosted Taliban back in November 2018? So the reason behind that probably, I mean, several reasons. The first one is that Russia wants to promote its image as a moderator, as a power broker, starting from the Middle East, North Africa, uh, even Central Asia and Afghanistan as well. Secondly, Russia wants to um, keep all options open. So basically, if we look at anywhere in the world where Russia is engaged, we can see that it uh, maintains working relations or at least contacts with all major actors. So whether it's Israel or Iran, Hamas or Hezbollah, uh, Saudi Arabia or Qatar. So that means, uh, you know, uh, image-wise that Russia is a influential power broker having connections with everyone. And the Taliban have said themselves uh, in, in interviews with, with Russian media that Russia and the Taliban actually have shared security interests in Afghanistan. Can you tell us a little bit more about what those shared security interests might be? Since 2015, 2016, when uh, ISIS started to suffer seriously from U.S. and Russia's uh, anti-ISIS campaign in Syria, it started to move and spread into Afghanistan. That started also to create some challenges and threats to Taliban because they also kind of a rival uh, organizations, uh, movements inside the country. So, and in the recent years, um, ISIS activity in Afghanistan um, started to be more more active. And that, of course, uh, causes 
security concerns from Russia's side because historically, traditionally, Central Asia, including Afghanistan, is treated by Moscow as Russia's sensitive underbelly through which negative currents can affect its security through Afghanistan, its uh, drug trafficking through Central Asian republics, then into Russia, or spread of radical movements uh, also from Afghanistan to into Central Asia and then moving forward to Russia. U.S. officials have, have come out and said that Russia is just trying to interfere in Washington's own effort to bring about an end to the 17-year conflict there. Do you, do you, um, do you see any truth in, 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 that, in that criticism? Well, yes and no. In the first place, I wouldn't say these two tracks are mutually exclusive or uh, controversial um, because Moscow so far hosted one meeting with Taliban where Russian officials were present, which was last year when uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov and Zemir Kabulov, uh, Russia's uh, Afghanistan representative, uh, were present. This time, it's also not even talks it's uh, or negotiations. It's, it's a conference. And Russia's MFA clearly distanced itself from... Uh, you know, being among organizers. So officially, the main organizer of this uh, two-day conference is Afghani diaspora in Russia. So that means that Moscow tries to keep itself um, equidistant from all parties, also not to clearly oppose Afghani, current Afghani president, because he clearly um, criticized this attempt as saying as those guys who are going to Moscow trying just to get their power back because the majority of those who came uh, representing Afghani, uh, not Afghani government official, but uh, former senior officials, former president Hamid Karzai and uh, other opposition uh, f- figures. So that's the first thing. Secondly, we also shouldn't forget that Afghanistan is a security concern for Russia because it neighbors Central Asian republics, and then it can clearly affect uh, Russia's territory itself. So this is why for Moscow, it's very important uh, that Americans are still there, or how this situation will be managed if ultimately, eventually, uh, Trump's decision to withdraw troops from Afghanistan will, you know, come to life. So this is why I wouldn't say that Moscow tries to hijack or spile or, you know, kind of um, interfere in the process. I would say it's just trying to test the alternatives, some other options, so to be ready uh, for the developments in the country. Because also, don't forget that uh, I think in uh, another elections are scheduled for July this year. And that's going to be also a uh, topic to, to monitor. Do you have a sense of how um, the Russian public are responding to this to this seemingly closer relationship between between Moscow and the Taliban? Well, again, in the first place, I wouldn't say and wouldn't call this relationship seemingly close, because it just seems like Russia is uh, like doing uh, first steps uh, or just in the beginning of building its relations with with Taliban. Is apparently is becoming more and more influential force on the ground, and given the uh, latest talks, six-day talks between U.S., Afghanistan rep, and uh, and Taliban in 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 Doha, when they uh, seemingly try to reach an agreement on U.S. withdrawal and what Taliban would give back for 
for that. So coming back to to the Russian public, in the first place, I wouldn't say that Russian public is that much concerned of following the topic in the first place. Yes, uh, there is no doubt that uh, there is still sentiments about and, uh, you know, historic memory about this uh, Soviet involvement into Afghanistan and that quite, you know, negative memories. And what's interesting, for example, in 2015, when Russia decided to deploy its troops to Syria, then this topic of Afghanistan was brought back into the public discourse. And there was quite uh, live debates on whether this involvement, current involvement in Syria, will repeat the story of USSR involvement in Afghanistan. So, and according to polls back in 2015, 16, 17, the majority of public basically answered that uh, they don't see that Syria can become the second Afghanistan. So if to extrapolate that onto a question about current, you know, view, I wouldn't say that it's it bothers a lot the Russian public in the first place. And secondly, we don't see any results or breakthroughs on this track of Moscow budding with uh, Taliban or making breakthroughs uh, into intra-Afghani dialogue or dialogue between uh, Afghani government, official government and Taliban. So looking forward, what kind of, what kind of role do you see Russia playing in, in, in the future of Afghanistan? Russia clearly understands that it doesn't have much influence and much say in Afghani future and into the uh, actual, you know, reconciliation peace process. As far as uh, the United States is the major um, influencer and stakeholder in, uh, in, in, in the country. So I think that a couple of major things that Russia wants to secure its channel of communication with Taliban. So if in case eventually U.S. withdraws from, Tal- uh, from Afghanistan and Taliban eventually will play a bigger role and becomes official political force in the country, then it will be useful to have already established channel of communication and history of positive involvement and engagement with the movement. Alexei, thanks very much for taking the time to be with us in the studio. Thank you for having me. During Pavel Malkov's first week as the head of Russia's official statistics agency, Rostat made a huge revision. GDP in 2016 hadn't actually dropped by 0.2%, as previously reported. It had actually grown by 0.3%. Then on Monday, the agency released growth data for 2018, and some journalists who had been making similar calculations were left scratching their heads over how exactly Rostat had arrived at their very optimistic figures. Joining us on the line from Berlin is Bloomberg columnist Leon Borschitsky to help us make sense of what could be behind some of these new figures. Leon, thanks very much for taking the time to be with us today uh, on the line. Um, no problem. So in your recent column, you say that uh, you, you talk about Rostad having issued some numbers that look feverishly optimistic. Can you explain um, what's behind what, what's behind these numbers? It's hard to say exactly what's behind these numbers. The, the, the official explanation for the um, unexpectedly high growth in 2018 is a um, uh, construction boom. And most of it apparently took place in uh, the Yamal Nenets uh, autonomous region in northwestern Siberia, where 
I guess the only big construction that was finished in 2018 was a large graphite natural gas facility built by Novatech. And so it's assumed that uh, this particular bit of construction has resulted in uh, a jump in construction activity by 4.5%, I think, in 2018. And that uh, led to this um, unexpectedly high growth that nobody, no economist, literally not a single economist predicted uh, 2.3% growth for 2018. The, the highest of uh, 38 forecasts tracked by Bloomberg was 2.1%. But, you know, the official explanation and this this whole construction looks a bit weird, um, and not just to me, but also to a bunch of government economists, such as Klepach at uh, Econom Bank, such as uh, Kudrin at the accounting chamber, such as Kirill Tremasov, who um, used to work for the um, economy ministry. And, you know, they have their doubts about the quality of the data, and uh, it's even possible that it's not just poor quality data, but book cooking. You mentioned in your piece that the new data and the the, the, the corrections uh, coincided with a change in the leadership of Rostat. Can you give us the backstory there? It's a sort of a complicated backstory. The previous head of Rostat was not a popular figure in the government. First, uh, the economy minister criticized the data quality and methods back in 2017. And uh, after that, Rostad became part of the economy ministry. It used to be an independent agency. Now it's become part of the economy ministry. Then um, more recently in 2018, the finance ministry was really unhappy with the data. And uh, they suspect that the, the technology Rostad uses to assess things like inflation, like uh, people's real incomes, not really modern. There has been a lot of displeasure in the government with um, shift, what Rostat has described as a shift to European standards for some of the accounting that it does. It was sort of abrupt and they didn't really have the data to fit those standards. So the information the ministries that run the economy have been getting from Rostat has been inconsistent. There have been a lot of weird revisions and large revisions of that. First, we all thought there was a recession in 2016, that the the economy shrank uh, a little bit. Now it turns out, after the revisions, that it actually grew a little so the the data are jumping around, they're inconsistent. Other parts of the government weren't happy with it. Then um, when Putin gave his annual press conference in December, he was asked about the quality of the statistics that he that, that he'd used during the press conference. And the question was something like, um, you know, the, the stats that you're giving are so rosy, but people are not really, you know, feeling so good about their the way they're doing economically. So there are widespread doubts about the data that you're getting from the official statistical agency. And Putin said that, yeah, I agree, the data are imperfect, we need to do something to improve them. And so literally four days after the 
you know, after the press conference, they replace the head of Rostat with a uh, an economics ministry official, economy ministry official, who was just 38 at the time and uh, you know a bright young careerist. Clearly, there's pressure from the other branches of government to get better data and to get nicer data. There's also political pressure from Putin, who likes statistics and uses them a lot in his speeches and prides himself on his ability to, you know, keep a lot of numbers in his head. So there are all sorts of pressure. And there's this guy who's, you know, making a a pretty nice vertical career in the government. Uh, So with sort of the complaints about the data quality and the various pressures that this guy is facing, I just think that people who work with official Russian statistics need to watch Rostat really carefully, signs of uh, massaging, you know, the data. How do you think that um, economists and the business community inside and outside of Russia are likely to respond um, to these projections and and to some of the the corrections from Rostat? It's extremely convenient for uh, bank economists uh, and for international organizations to rely on official data. You know, the the official data are there to make their life easy uh, and to make it unnecessary for them to track alternative sources and do all sorts of alternative counts. Uh, But I'm afraid that with what's happening at Rostat now, the serious researchers will go for all sorts of unofficial alternatives. And at least we'll need to uh, keep several models going at the same time. Uh, Watching the official data, yes, but not completely trusting it, because I, I don't think this is a good time to to be too confident about the, the you know the quality of what we're getting from Rostat. Thank you very much for for taking the time to to be with us. Yep, thank you so much. Thank you. And to finish off, for some Russians, the Soviet dream has lingered quite a bit longer than it has for others. Russian media reported this week that an unnamed woman in the Siberian city of Omsk had finally exchanged her red communist ID for a maroon Russian passport. Local officials said the woman had lived for 28 years with outdated documents and hadn't been able to get official employment or pick up her state pension. The 63-year-old got her ID as part of an amnesty program, meaning she didn't have to pay the 3,000-ruble fine or about $46. Official statistics on this are scarce, but according to the Civic Assistance Committee, there may be as many as 350,000 Soviet passport holders in Russia. Well, there's one fewer now. That's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in. And don't forget to rate the podcast on iTunes. It'll help other listeners find us. I'm Jonathan Brown. Our producer today was Piotr Sauer. And thank you to CM Records Studios in Moscow for hosting the show. Join us on next week from Russia with News. News.